So tonight, uh, I was actually, talk came about, I was, of course, reading about horror number 743 in Florida of 17 kids getting brutally murdered. And then, of course, the next thing I read is that Trump is up there not even acknowledging that rapid-fire guns, assault weapons are responsible, just making it all about mental illness and had nothing to do with just how widespread the proliferation of firearms are in this country. And as always, I got disgusted, and so I just couldn't give a talk uh, without acknowledging that and sort of talking about resistance, the psychology of resistance, which is an interesting thing to look into for me. On one hand, the world has always been a shithole, as the Buddha said. <laughs> he didn't say that literally, <laughs> but he did say uh, uh, in the Adhidanda Sutta, he did say, I look around me and everywhere there is fighting and competition and something like people living like fish flopping about in an ever-dwindling pool, fighting over dwindling resources. And so there's, the Buddha says, and then as I looked around in all directions, I saw that the future is dismal. And boy, did we really cap that brilliantly right now. We've like brought, uh, we've really brought that to bear. We, you know, uh, in another sutta, the Ratapala, the Buddha said, the world is swept away, nothing endures. There is no safe shelter and no one sane is in charge. <laughs> so, yeah, right now we've got, um, well, a shithead in charge and uh, feels almost a matter of course that every day you wake up and your president has threatened nuclear war, has gutted the Affordable Health Care Act, has, has ended our involvement in the Paris Climate Agreement, has defended white supremacists after they've committed murder, has naturalized spousal domestic abuse by keeping, by essentially justifying their keeping uh, Porter hired for years after they knew that he had battered two of his ex-wives. He's installed corrupt heads of the EPA, I mean the Environmental Protection, uh, the FCC, uh, the State Department, and you name it. Even worse, we essentially now live with a president who's gaslighting us on a daily basis. Not just by denying, despite the now uh, 13 indictments of Russians who interfered with our election, he continues to say no, there was no uh, involvement <coughs> There's, he keeps on claiming there was no collusion when clearly there was. This is what is going on. It's just one despicable event after the next. As somebody who started off very young in protest, very young in life, I started being involved in divestiture, uh, trying to get uh, businesses to rescind any investments uh, of South Africa at the time. And then Citizens in Solidarity with the people of El Salvador. And uh, so for <clears throat> through much of my life, uh, activism has been uh, very important to me. But today I know so many friends uh, and so many people in who were continuing to carry the torch. Up until recently, Black Lives Matter, uh, the women's marches, but now they feel somewhat just beaten down by the degree of ongoing, dismaying insanity that we live amidst. It's numbing. It creates a kind of fatalism, a kind of pointlessness, a kind of almost uh, apathy, uh, which are horrible states, absolutely horrible states to get into when we have someone who's essentially trying to end democracy in the U.S. and trying to install 
with a state media, state propaganda machine called Fox News, essentially establish an ongoing hegemonic rulership of the far right. So um, I thought I'd give a little talk about what the psychology I believe is needed to allow us to develop the strength and the capability for the long haul to take action, whether it's direct action, whether it's simply connecting with others, whether it's simply donating to causes, but hopefully something that will create enough of a voice uh, that will... It's the only thing I knew. It's what's... When I grew up, I was a kid, uh, the protests did go a long way to stopping the insanity of the Vietnam War. So I tend to believe that protest, when we're living in times of subterfuge, thuggery, brutality, is necessary. Now, obviously, there are certain events in life that can make it difficult to sustain resistance. If, we, if people who had early traumas in life, Trump is like the biggest, he's like a trigger on two fucking legs. I mean, I grew up with an alcoholic, narcissistic father, and I remember the day, November 9th last year, when he got elected, I felt like, my fucking drunk dad had been put in charge of the universe. And I was just so emotionally beaten down, and I felt so, so uh, you know, basically slapped upside the head. So people who have had early traumas can, of course, find this, this uh, just this figure, this context to be deeply, deeply activating. People who are members of vulnerable populations... Little groups of people like immigrants, women, people of color, disabled, just a few people, they might also feel completely vulnerable and living amidst the deeply threatening times. Unfortunately, relying on reason to try to motivate ourselves and others to take action won't work because the human beings do not act because of reason or logic. We are not actually a cognitive species, as though it seems like we are. Left brain cognition is an add-on. It's essentially, at most, it's inhibitive. It inhibits action. Uh, the left brain is there to basically explain why we're doing the things we do and to try to stop us from doing really, really stupid shit. But when it comes to almost all of the impulses to act, to step up, to uh, confront injustice. These are uh, essentially compelled or motivated by emotional impulses. We know this from the work of not just great neuroscientists like Damasio, Ledoux, <clears throat> Gazaniga, but the Buddha himself said that before we have thought before we have craving, we have Vedana, feeling. And I'm going to talk more about this, that the real core drive is based on core emotional feelings. Essentially, um, well, let's, let's step back for a moment. <clears throat> I'll come back to this. One of, of course, the most fundamental issues in Buddhist psychology is the idea that we don't have a lasting, permanent, uh, fixed self. You might, if you're aware of Buddhist uh, dharmic philosophy theory, it's called anatta. And basically the idea is that there is no underlying, abiding, core generative identity that lasts from childhood throughout adult life and creates a constant thread of who you are. So when we hear this, the immediate concern might be, well, it feels like there's, I have a lot of things in common with myself from a few years ago. I, I, I tend to have a lot of traits and patterns and behaviors that I return to a lot. And, of course, the Buddha 
didn't just leave it that there's no ongoing self. He never said that we don't have a self at any moment, by the way. We all do right now. It would be stupid if we didn't, because the self is one of the... creates a sense of coherence. But in early Buddhist psychology, in the Abhidhamma, uh, it's uh, taught that we have what's called chetasikas, or mental states, and they're kind of patterns that we go into. Some of them are positive. I'll read you. There's conviction, there's shame and abhorrence and disgust at evil. There's regard for consequences. Uh, These are hiri, otapa. And then there's negative states, disregard for consequences of one's actions, frantic busyness, greed, hatred, delusion. So we all switch from one kind of mind state to another kind of mind state to another kind of mind state to another kind of mind state. In evolutionary psychology today, this is uh, pretty much where all of uh, the most prominent thinkers in that uh, field have um, wound up, and including that also in so many of the therapeutic modalities. There's no longer the idea of the fixed self, but the idea of what's called self-states. In IFS therapy, it's called parts. In uh, Pat Ogden's work, it's sometimes called self-states. Some people call it sub-personalities. Some people call it modules. The idea is that we have these different traits that allow us to survive in different situations. You might, for example, in your own life, notice that you have a certain set of behaviors and thoughts and uh, inclinations that you have at work. But then if you hang out with your friends, you might have a different set of inclinations and behaviors and uh, approaches to how you interact with people. And then with with your family, in my case, God forbid, but there's an entirely different set of traits and roles that we play and identities that we fall into. Are you following me? So in evolutionary psychology of Kendrick, Wright, Kurzban, uh, Dunbar, all the greats in that field, the idea is that due to, over the course of evolution and the different behaviors that we needed to enact to survive in hunter-gatherer societies, we developed sub-personalities that we generally move between. So there's self-protection, that's reacting to real or imagined threats, and the underlying emotion for that is generally fear. There's mate attraction and retention, to find a partner and uh, take care of them and re-establish continually the relationship. That's based on desire, jealousy, compassion. Those are the underlying emotions associated with it. Tribal affiliation. We now know the circuits are housed in the right anterior cingulate cortex, and that is sustained by feeling that we are meaningfully connected with a community. And unfortunately, so many of us today aren't, and it creates feelings of loneliness, shame, depression, But when we do feel meaningfully connected with others, the emotion that's activated is pride. Data-seeking, accumulation of resources, greed, envy, hoarding, associated, uh, disease avoidance, and abhorrence at antisocial acts is disgust and revulsion. So these are the various different self-states that we glide between. And the latest theory that's proposed by Wright, who's a wonderful thinker, Robert Wright. He wrote actually a book called Why Buddhism is True. Go figure. He wrote the following. Feelings aren't just little parts of you that you thought of had a minimal role in who you were, your self, your identity. They are closer to the very core of who you are. They are doing what you thought you were doing. Feelings are calling the shots. It's feelings that decide which 
module or self-state will be in charge. And it's when you're in a self-state or module that decides what you'll actually do, how you'll actually think, and how you'll actually talk. So what he's heading, what he's getting at is that if we want to change the way we act, we don't think differently. We don't try to reason with ourselves. We have to change the way we feel. And this brings me back to what I was talking about with the Buddha. In the Paticca Samuppada, the Buddha said, Vedana, feeling, comes before craving to change something about life. And then that comes before thinking, upadana, you know, attachment to uh, sensual pleasures, beliefs, rituals, routines, habits, and so forth. So well before we think, well before we act, we have gut, core, emotional feelings. And if you want to change in your life the way you act in situations, if you want to change the way you respond to stimuli, don't try to change how you think about it. Start by changing the way you feel. Wright goes on to say, uh, in a very Buddhist type vein, the key is to observe a feeling as it begins to emerge and never become firmly attached to it unless you know it's skillful. If you don't know it's skillful, don't yield to attachment. So, for example, if you're feeling envious of someone, you will first start to feel it in the body. It's this feeling of when you think about that person who's gotten something that you wanted, has gotten uh, you know, a nice car, uh, I don't know what you, you want. But anyway, uh, envy starts as a feeling. It starts as this tight stomach, this tension in the head, this, this, this sense of, of unease and being left out. Other people have good things, and I don't have good things. If we want to change the obsessive thinking, don't try to rationalize with ourselves why we shouldn't be envious. Focus on the feelings somatically in the body. Relax, breathe into, soften the, the, en the envy in the tight stomach, in the throat, in the, the forehead, and change that feeling through ease, comfort, through the breath, allow another feeling to arise. And then you'll be in a different module and you'll have different thoughts and different behaviors. And you won't have the same obsessive, envious thoughts. So given what I've just talked about, suppose the goal is to feel permitted, even encouraged to resist, to fight back, to take action, is it that we should give ourselves in lectures or read even more upsetting news, get ourselves even more riled up, or is there actually a more efficient way to motivate resistance? My theory that I'm proposing to you tonight is that this requires switching from being shocked and being frightened and being in a vulnerable physiological somatic state to switching to an entire different set of feelings that permit us to fight back. What would those feelings be? Well, <clears throat> I propose, and I'll bring it into a Buddhist proposal as well. Personally, I think anger is important. All emotions exist because they meet core evolutionary needs. We have fear to get us out of dangerous situations. We have anger to confront injustice or when somebody doesn't have good boundaries. We have disgust to expel food that is, not, is toxic or also disgust at seeing uh, harm being done. If you don't want to use anger as a motivating force, and certainly in early Buddhist theory, using anger is kind of a non-starter. The Buddha wasn't big on it. Uh, dosa and vayapada, anger and ill will, almost invariably cast in a very dim light. 
I personally think that anger is useful to motivate. I've done in my life in activism, I've met so many people who came into a community based on anger. If you don't want to use anger as a motivating force, <clears throat> in early Buddhism, there's hiri, H-I-R-I, and that is disgust at evil. So that's pretty good, <laughs> right? I get disgusted every single time I read any, just I look at it, I look at the fucker, <laughs> and I just feel revulsion, just physiological, like, I want to expel any air that he's breathed, that I've breathed out of me. I just, I just feel this thing in my throat, this tightening in my shoulders, this, you know, contraction in my, my, my arms. I don't know why. I just, that's what I feel. <clears throat> now, if all we feel is disgust or anger, <clears throat> in my experience, that's not sustainable. When I worked in CISPIS, People who came in and only came and only were uh, essentially motivated, energized through anger, they would not last. They would essentially start internecine battles with other activists because none of us were doing it right if all they were motivated was by anger. There was nothing checking it. So anger or disgust alone is not enough. I propose that there's two other states that we have to, or two other modules that we have to be capable of. One would be compassion. Compassion being caring about the suffering that people who are at the wrong end right now, the Trump years. Again, people of color, women, uh, immigrants, to feel a sense of compassion for them. That mitigates the anger and allows us to balance the underlying, uh, the different modules or self-states that we need to be in to fight, to resist, to become active in some way. The final <clears throat> capability I would propose would be equanimity. That's the ability to balance one's life, to know when to stop, to know when to take care of oneself. To know when enough's enough. You've done enough work. You've given enough money. You've uh, put enough effort into your uh, social work, your committed work. And when it's time to take care of yourself, take care of your relationships. Again, disgust, compassion, and equanimity. We need to balance those. If we don't have disgust or anger, outrage in some form, then we will, not come, we will not be motivated to fight back. We will feel disempowered and vulnerable, and we won't have that fire under our asses to get up out of our chairs. If we don't have compassion, the anger or disgust alone will essentially burn out over time or will lead to <clears throat> ongoing frustration and it leads to increasingly dysregulated emotional outbursts. If we don't have equanimity, if we can't know when enough is enough, we will essentially become dysregulated as well, and our lives will become out of balance. I know some of you expect me to say maybe forgiveness. Forgiveness has an important role when it comes to resentments that we're carrying around especially with family members or with people in our lives. But when it comes to social resistance, I'll be frank with you, I've never fucking forgiven Dick Cheney. And I'm never fucking going <laughs> to forgive him. The guy can go fuck himself. I don't give a shit. I don't care if it limits my spiritual attainments. I don't ever wake up and go, oh, you know, I really should forgive Dick Cheney. Fuck him. Noah has to forgive, because he's going for, you know, the full, you know, what, what are you, you going for? You're going for, like, the... Malibu? Malibu. <laughs> he has to forgive, to live in Malibu, he's got to forgive. 
I don't. I live in Brooklyn. We don't forgive shit, right? So, so I, I'm 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 big on forgiveness when it comes to resentment, and you've first felt the anger, you've processed the anger, you've felt the disappointment. Then, after all that, then forgive. But don't jump to forgiveness before you've done, you've felt and been with the necessary emotions that preceded. In this case, uh, you might think as well, um, but the Buddha was such a loving, sweet, kind, not, he never got outraged, Josh. He never was, he never felt disgusted at, at people. Well, let me bring up a couple of instances. In the Kuchavara, the Buddha came across a sick monk who was neglected by the other monks. And after tending and feeding and bathing the sick monk, the Buddha turned to the other monks and literally said to them, how dare you? What is the matter with you? Don't you have the slightest sense of decency? In the Mahata, Mahata, Mahata Tana Saka, the Mahatana Sankaya, the Mahatana Sankaya Sutta, I had that. The Buddha tells a monk who systematically distorts the truth, who lies constantly, he calls him a worthless man and kicks him out of the Sangha, doesn't speak to him again. In the Alaga Dupama Sutta, Arita is a monk who says, that it's okay for monks like him to use their status as spiritual figures to get sex. This is totally against everything the Buddha stood for. The Buddha said, you idiot. When have I ever taught such lunacy? You will be known forever by your stupidity. Does that sound like a guy who never got outraged? There's a whole, there's a whole book in the Dhammapada called Balavaga, which they nicely translate, because they're not me, they translate as foolish or fools. I translate it as fucking idiots. And in it it says, a fool is one who justifies their ill-gotten wealth procured by stealing from others, demanding power. Such people deserve to be confronted and told that they are fools. So the Buddha was not somebody who backed down, who was not somebody who didn't feel outrage. The Buddha was someone, after all, who essentially, on his own, came up with a, uh, a whole tradition that upended the, Buddha, the Indian uh, Indus Valley caste system. He made the rich people who joined as renunciates dine and live in close quarters with the untouchables, the Shastriyas. So the Buddha was not scared. He was not frightened. He was not intimidated by social change and demanding, uh, demanding fairness in the world. Martin Luther King said, the supreme task we face is to organize and unite people so that their anger their anger will become the transforming force. So tonight in our meditation, we're going to be, <coughs> first I'm going to, we'll have a time where we settle, because that's what we do, we do a little concentration. And then the second part, I'm going to try to help us cultivate the three Vedana feeling states that are associated with outrage, going to get you all hot and outraged, it'll be great. Then compassion, and then we'll, when we get to the equanimity, the key phrases in equanimity, we're going to do that a little bit as a kind of a meta practice. The key phrases is essentially in <clears throat> the relevant suttas is all beings are owners and heirs of their actions. And that lets you know that when you're confronting injustice with someone like Trump, right, you can think, you can hold an image of Trump in your head and just do the equanimity phrase, which is you are the owner of your actions. 
your happiness and suffering are the results of your actions. And then you can think of somebody that you care about and do the same. And the words, they'll completely change then. You are the owner of your actions. Your happiness and suffering are due to your actions. And that allows us to step back and know when enough action is enough. Because at the end, I don't believe... In karma is the sense that the universe is this closed system where if you kick a dog, another dog will bite you or there's some action gives birth to another action. I believe that karma is a psychological truth, that human beings have tribal wirings. And when we do evil, horrific acts, we suffer emotionally. And at the end of the day, knowing that is enough to allow us to know what's enough action and when it's time to take care of ourselves. Okay, well, that's the talk. So, find a really super comfortable position. Lots and lots of settling in. And so, if you want to find a good posture, one, don't look at your neighbor. You'll probably find someone who's sitting with what looks like the perfect posture it'll make you feel shitty. It does for me. The key to a good posture is just balance. So if you can keep your, you wriggle your ears for a moment while your eyes are closed and then wriggle your up and down your shoulders and then your squinch your buttocks and then try to bring those all into some kind of alignment where one's above the other. So your shoulders above your buttock the sit bones, and then your ears are above your shoulders. You get that, that's probably good balance. Another trick is just, we could do the other one as well. So just with your eyes closed, shift from left to right, and rock from front to back, left and right, rocking around, and then slowly come to a stop and just allow your body to find what feels like a good, you know, balanced upright position. Finally, a third trick is the real enemy of meditation is allowing your head to slouch in front of your chest. That's when everything goes wrong. So tilt your head slightly up like you're looking at a very tall building. If you do that, everything else will be fine. So I'm going to start us with these three breaths I always use. There's a whole rigmarole of neuroscience reasons why I do this, but I'm not going to bore you with it. Just trust me. What could go wrong? (laughs) So, uh, nice full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up while you're breathing in. Just hold the shoulders up. And then breathe out through your mouth and drop your shoulders. And so, breathing in through the nose and pulling in your belly really tight, like you're trying to lose two inches from your waist, holding in the belly, and then breathe out through the mouth and soften the belly. That's great. And then for the third breath, this is the most fun one, kind of fun. So breathing in and squinch all the muscles in your face. Make a really ugly pinched face. You know, squinching the eyes, the nose, locking the jaw. And then breathe out through the mouth. And just relax. Relax. Soften the muscles around, micro muscles around the eyes. Release the jaw. If you can ask the eyes sitting behind, the eyeballs sitting behind closed eyelids to settle, to take a little, find a comfortable settled position in the eye sockets. If your eyes become settled, then the mind very quickly becomes settled. That's great. Good work. So, 
we're going to try to cultivate the feeling of, uh, you know, when you've taken a long journey to get to a destination you're really looking forward to. You've traveled for hours in the plane, and then you've gotten into a car, and then you've walked a distance, and finally you get to a wonderful, remote, beautiful spot. And you put your bags down, <coughs> and you find a really comfortable seat, and you're, you've reached your destination. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing you need to do. There's no one you need to please. Everything you've been rushing around and trying to achieve has come to fruition in this moment. Nothing we're looking forward to. It's all, this is the place we've yearned to be. You can really have this experience anytime if you find and cultivate the right feeling. It's that relaxed shoulders, that soft belly, relaxed micro-muscles in the face, and the slow, long out-breath. You're home. At a place that really feels like home. So for a little while, Try to keep in mind one sensation in the foreground of your attention. Attention. You don't have to push anything away. If thoughts are there in the background, that's fine. Sounds, body sensations. So I'll suggest a few sensations you could keep in awareness. The first could be the feeling of your body breathing in and out. Don't try to have a, just a vague sense of when you're breathing, but literally find the upward expansive energy in the torso of inhalation and then the dropping and the release of exhalation. And just try to be with those sensations. If you find often with working with the breath, your mind wanders almost immediately, then count the breaths. One on the in, two on the out. Three on the in, four on the out. When you get to five, think the next out breath, four, then three, then two. So you're counting from one to five and back down. Put most of your energy into the pauses in between exhalations and inhalations. That's when we tend to wander away. Many people don't like working with the breath, and that's okay. Just listen to the sounds. There's a fan going on. Ambient sounds, distant sounds from the road outside. My voice. Don't try to visualize what's creating the sounds. Just be with each sound as it arrives to awareness and then let it go so that you're practicing staying present. You could also observe the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Closed eye visuals. Buddha called them nimittas. Finally, if none of those appeal, you could just repeat a very simple phrase in the mind. May all beings 
be peaceful and free of suffering, or any other phrase that similarly denotes spiritual aspirations. So we'll sit in silence for a little while. Most important, by the way, is when your mind does drift away, which happens to all of us, just gently lead it back. No frustration, no impatience, no criticism of yourself. It happens to everyone. Treat the mind that wanders like a child that's wandered away from a safe space to a dangerous part of a park and you just gently lead it back. If nothing else, if you spend your entire meditation refraining from self-criticism and patience and frustration and just cultivate a sense of appreciation for your efforts, you'll have created such a rewarding positive emotional experience.
like you to bring to mind any images that you associate with the recent events in South Florida, 17 people killed by an assault rifle in the hands of one individual, many of them 13 and 14 year old kids at the start of life now dead. We just went, wanted to go to school that day. And then followed that image with an image of any one of the senators or congressmen who are on the NRA payroll, many of which have received over three to four million dollars campaign donations specifically to derail any gun control. Visualize the president telling us that it has nothing to do with the availability of weapons, that these children die. Can you feel a tightness in your belly or just a sense of revulsion? an individual in power who justifies misogynistic acts, proudly talks about his rapist behavior. Can you feel some sense of disgust? Anything to you can hold, any image that can create the real experience of this shall not stand. And just feel what is evoked in your body. Is it a locked quality in your jaw? Is it a tenseness in your shoulders? Do the muscles in the back of your neck get tight? Do you feel your... What does outrage feel like? And now let's temper that feeling with compassion, visualizing how distraught any one of the parents of those children might have, must have been to have lost their child. The fear an instability of the life of hundreds of thousands of dreamers who came to this country decades ago just to find work, who now face expulsion simply because it's a political ploy that plays well in certain red state demographics. Compassion for all the people who lose health care. Where do you feel compassion? Is it a hollowness in the chest? A heaviness in the eyes? What is the feeling of compassion? Know the feeling. And finally, let's move to equanimity. If we get pulled too much into outrage or even compassion, 
<clears throat> to any state of care, if we get pulled too deeply into it, then we will lose care of ourself. We can't be of help to someone if we become emotionally dysregulated, stressed. We can't pull someone into a raft if we've been pulled into the water ourselves. So bring up an image of someone you really care about. Just hold their image very sharp and detailed in your mind. And even though you know how much you want this person to be happy and peaceful, knowing that there's only so much you can do, in your mind, directed towards this person you care about, you are the owner of your actions. Your happiness or your suffering ultimately depends on what you do. You are the owner of your actions. Your, happen, your happiness or your suffering ultimately depends on what you do. <clears throat> now bring up some figure, some individual that you would love to see removed from power. that is the very incarnation of belligerence, aggression, inhumanity. But knowing it might take years for this person to face the consequences and that we might often not succeed that doesn't mean our efforts weren't vital, but still we need to know when to let go. So holding that figure in your mind, you are the owner of your actions. Your happiness or suffering ultimately depends on what you do. knowing the truth that we cannot escape the ramifications of our actions. And just feeling this sense of being able to let go when it's time to put aside our acts and when it's time to just focus on our own needs. How does that feel? So I'm going to ring the bell or the bowl in a moment. I'd like to request that you take a moment when you hear the sound to just open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you and integrate sight with the light and colors into your awareness in such a way that you don't allow sight to dominate your attention and lose awareness of what's going on in your body. Try to find a way to integrate sight into your awareness so that you are still attentive to how you feel. Because after all, if we want to change the way we act, we have to always know how we feel. <clears throat> 